Well, good evening. So good to see you, to have you. Um, before I begin, I just, I just wanted to pause and just tell you how thankful I am for you. A year ago, myself and Pastor AJ, we began these series on Wednesday nights, just speaking to ourselves and those of you that were watching. And we've done this journey for the last year, and your faithfulness and your consistency and your generosity and just the way that God has used you, I just want to just pause and say thank you. I'm so thankful for you. I appreciate you, and I cannot wait to see you next week. Uh, and I, it's really an honor for me to, to conclude uh, this series uh, that we that we really have been working to try to get a, f- a new perspective on how we see our our neighbor, and if I'm honest with you, the chasm between my head and my heart, as it pertains to this idea of loving my neighbor, is is quite large. It's pretty huge, actually. Um, if I were to have a test, and on the test is Corey, do you believe that? Uh, that Jesus died on the cross for you and now his Holy Spirit lives inside of you and the greatest gift that you can give the world is loving others the way you've been loved, I would say yes. I agree with that statement. I kind of, I mean, it's important for me to believe that since I'm the outreach pastor. So that's kind of goes with the territory. I love this. I love talking about this, but It's one thing to believe, it's another thing when your behavior doesn't quite match what you believe. And I think I I can speak for you, because I know that you're nodding right now, that the chasm between your head and your heart is probably similar to mine. And the, the approaches that I have at times when it comes to the way in which I see my neighbor is, uh, I can be cordial with a comfortable distance. Uh, I I know the right things to say to certain neighbors to make the conversation as quick as possible. Uh, I I talk about the weather. Uh, I talk about how's the kids. Uh, I know what I need to say to wrap things up because, to be honest with you, my heart and my head don't match. I know what it's like to be altogether indifferent where there's certain neighbors I just don't even talk to. Just, if I'm honest, there's not really a whole lot of desire to do that. I know what it's like for certain neighbors to be projects. And I know that's crass to even say that. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's certain neighbors that we are concerned about their behavior. And so we really want to serve them into the kingdom because we want them to change. And so self-righteousness easily guides the way that we treat our neighbors. But then there's a tenacious commitment. It's one that we've been trying to consider over these last three weeks. And the way that we've looked at the tenacious commitment that we are made to exist in, this air that we are made to breathe is as a result of the air that was breathed by Jesus himself. And the last three weeks of Jesus' life through through the book of John is stunning a man who's living an impossible life. He is, his time is ticking. The sand is going through the hourglass. And yet, even when he should be self-preserving, he's self-giving. 
and everything about the way that he lives and operates and the way that he treats people, the way that he exhausts his resources, exhausts himself, everything is for others, even though time is of the essence. It's an inconvenient time. It's uncomfortable, and yet he gives, and he gives, and he gives. And he doesn't just do it while he's on the earth. What we're going to find tonight is he does it when he returns after defeating sin, death, and the grave. And for tonight, I, I want to title this. I know, uh, please forgive me. I gave you notes, and I've changed everything. <laughs> I'm such a bad pastor sometimes. I'm so sorry. But I don't. I want to go a different route with the title that I gave you, as well as the content, because... I quickly found that the way that I was writing it was things for you to do. Isn't that us? Isn't that our natural tendency is to just look at our neighbors as things I have to do. List that I have to live into. And yet what I want to do is I want to look at the God of the runaway. Peter, me, and my neighbor. The God of the runaway Peter, me and my neighbor. If you've got your Bibles, which I'm sure that you do, um, look at John chapter 21, verses 3, and we're just going to go to verses 8. This is what it says. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. He said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on the outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the, the sea. Lord, help us as we study. Um, I've got four amazing kids, but one story uh, that I recently remembered freshly, um, one story of one of my kids not to be named goes above and beyond as one of the finest moments that at the time it wasn't very good, but now that I look back, it is just epic. Um, I have got a son who um, wasn't very good at math, and he would go into his math class really dejected because he just was always behind, uh, and his teacher really believed in him and was trying to help him, and and was giving him certain assignments to do and then ways by which to do it, and he would try to do it, and he would just fail. And he would try to show the teacher, and the teacher said, no, no Zach, you're almost there. You've got you to gotta adjust it. Oh, I just gave his name away. Dang it. <laughs> and, and so the teacher went back, and he went back, and she went back again. And finally, you know, as, as Zachary, as my son is getting, oh, man, as he's, getting the, the problems wrong, he's starting to even like, starting to slide back towards the back of the room. And finally, the last time he had gotten a, the problem wrong, he just was done. He was done with the teacher. 
He was done with the class. And so he packed up his things and he left. He left. He bawled out. We lived in Florida and he rode his bike to school. And so he got on his bike and he went home at 10 o'clock in the morning. And there's a police officer that was assigned to the school and came and um, gently guided him uh, to the principal's office. And it reminds me of the runaway within. It's a runaway within all of us. I need you to know that. It's easy to look at the runaway in the lives of others, but like a car that needs an alignment that just guides one direction, our heart and our life is always leaning towards running, running from the very one that we were created for. And it's really been our pattern since the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And what, what I, I'm amazed at when it comes to how John is leading up to this story is that he has been communicating so clearly and eloquently just the impossible life that Jesus has led. And, I mean, when, when it comes to even the way by which he lived this impossible life, many treated it as a ladder by which to climb, but his life wasn't a ladder to climb to be like him. His life was a wall that you collide into, leaving you on your back, letting you know you just can't do it. And everything about his, his life from his teachings, it's better to give like, you are, you, you are honored when you give versus receiving. That, 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 that the, the, the kingdom of heaven is such as these. He, he, would, he would teach in such a way that people would hear it and go, this is an impossible life, I can't do it. His example was impossible. The way that he, he loved the Samaritan woman, John 4. The way that he took a woman caught in adultery and restored her. Everything about Jesus and his life and his example and his teaching, everything is leading to this one simple conclusion, I can't do it. This is impossible. Even his sacrifice on the cross, absorbing all of humanity's sin, this is the impossible sacrifice, but then he follows it up with the impossible victory. He does it. He defeats Sin, death, and the grave. And he does it through the perspective of a second Adam and this rescue mission. That Jesus is the true and better Adam that we might live forever. That the first Adam was tested and turned from the father in a garden. The last Adam turned to the father in a garden. The first Adam's sin brought thorns to us. The last Adam wore a crown of thorns for us. The first Adam substituted himself for God. The last Adam was God substituting himself for us. The first Adam sinned at a tree. The last Adam bore our sins on a tree. First Adam brought condemnation on mankind. The last Adam brought salvation for mankind. Where Adam failed in Eden, Christ succeeded in Gethsemane. This is the beautiful substitution of what Jesus has done. This, this beautiful two words of but God and for us. These two words kiss at the cross and now live at the resurrection. And what you have in Christ is you have one where you have to ask yourself the question, what is Jesus going to do with himself, with his life, 
with one who has defeated, entered into humanity's sin, but then has defeated it at the resurrection. What's he going to do now? How's he going to do it? What's going to happen? Enter John 21. And for most theologians, they believe that John chapter 20, the end of John 20, is the end of the book. It's the end. But then you've got an addendum, epilogue, if you will. John 1 is the prologue. John 21 is the epilogue where some, some loose ends are tied up. And I'm so glad, so thrilled that they threw in what happened to Peter. Because what you have in, P- in Peter is a case study of what, of what it looks like for a life to be impacted and transformed by the king who has defeated sin at the cross and overcome it victoriously at the resurrection. Now, pursuing relentlessly humanity right where they are. This, I love this story. And what we're going to find in this, and just as I break this down, I'm going to do the best I can. I usually don't follow my outline, so just hold, hold tight with me. But what we're going to find is that that God is going to, we're, we're, we're going to see God showing that he is committed to the journey of the runaway. We're going to see that, that, that when it comes to the, the approach and the disposition of God in Christ Jesus, that he shows us that he has the power to heal the heart of the runaway. And then what we're going to see is that God shows us that he is committed to using the runaway. And so we're going to start with the life of Peter. We're going to unpack this. And as we unpack it, it's going to lead us to, to not just go instantly to a neighbor, but it's going to force us to go instantly to ourself. We're going to start with Peter, go to me, and we'll conclude with my neighbor. What we see in Peter is, in these few verses, Simon Peter said to him, I am going fishing, but the night, that night they caught nothing. Can you just try to fathom what it would have been like to be Peter? We know his story. Just a chapter and a half before he had denied Jesus. A man who had duplicity running through his enti- the entirety of his Christian walk, which I think for most of us we can really, we can understand. He's got great highs and great lows. He says, you have Jesus saying that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. And then the next moment, Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that is a bad day. That's just Peter. It's us. The duplicity of a man, and yet here he finds himself on the heels of his greatest failure and defeat. And you have a man who is resurrecting his, whole, his old life through this boat. And you find that he is, in his old life, starting over. Because surely God has given up on me. And it says, the text says that he's in the dark and he hasn't caught anything. He's empty handed and he's stripped. Love that in the text. I doesn't really, I I just, this plays into where Peter is in his soul. He's at the bottom, he's broken, he has nothing to offer, he's on his back. C.S. Lewis beautifully says it like this. He says, 
um, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Here, this man, Peter, is, he is stuck and has nowhere to go. And he is, he is in need of an outside source. And what we have in this moment is that in the midst of his greatest place of brokenness, it's as if even you feel like a satanic movement with Peter where he's, he's being pressed to the end. And yet Jesus, he steps in and literally intercepts Peter at the goal line. Uh, on November the 30th, 2013, I was watching the Alabama-Auburn game where it was just, you knew Alabama was going to win. The, top, the score is 28 to 28, number 99, a kicker. Comes in, he's got a 57-yard kick. It's a big kick, but he had made that before. And he kicks this ball as soon as it goes up in the air, you know the game is over. That the game is going one direction, but then number 11, forget his name for Auburn, he jumps up and catches this kick. And within 11 seconds, the game, which was going one direction, pivots instantly from what you thought was like certain defeat has become certain victory because someone intercepted it at the goal line. And what you have in Jesus is you have one who steps into his journey steps into his reality, steps into his brokenness, and he steps in to intercept Peter from himself. And what will Jesus do with his power, with his resurrection? He comes to intercept us, Peter, from the demonic forces of his past, from the own self-infliction of his sin. And you have Jesus, he is rushing into, not because he has to, but because this is why he came to the earth. He is not scared of Peter's sin. He's not overwhelmed by it. He's rushing to it. He intercepts Peter. And, and what, the, way that I, this, the way that he navigates this life, this, this experience with Peter is stunning. Because what you have in Jesus, it says it's at daybreak. In the midst of the dawn, the dawn is coming to its end and the light is coming. And it's at the most inconvenient time of the day is when Jesus appears. And he appears exhausting his resources for Peter. Isn't this what Jesus does? He intercepts us or humanity from himself and then he, his kindness leads us to repentance. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus, he came to the earth to do. And this is a beautiful, just, it's, it's a picture. It's this, it's this unveiling of not just Peter's life, but that now a foreshadowing of all of humanity. And then what Jesus does is he, he leads Peter in verse nine. Let me just read this because you've got to catch the language. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. with Fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled in the net full of large fish. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Do you see what's happening? That here Jesus, he intercepts Peter. And then what he does, knowing his current condition, guess where he leads him? To a charcoal fire. Do you remember this, this word charcoal fire is mentioned twice in John's book. Once when Peter denies him and once now. The word charcoal fire is specifically used. And can you imagine what that fire would have represented for, for Peter? The smells, the sound, the sight, the texture. Everything about that fire is embedded into his soul. It's a reminder of his failure. And guess where Jesus takes the runaway? He takes him back to his greatest place of pain. Why? Because that is what a resurrected, crucified king who now exchanges himself for us, those who exchange ourselves for other gods. He now pursues Peter at his greatest place of pain. Why? Because he wants the, the heart of the runaway to find healing. And then he, he leads him to this, this defining moment. We know the story where he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. A threefold calling to negate the threefold description of Peter's rejection of Jesus. That here we have Jesus who now calls the runaway into action, calls the runaway into power, calls the runaway into purpose, not because of them, because of himself. But the question is, and my first instance or instinct is to go from Peter to my neighbor needs this. It's about my neighbor. But let me just tell you, if, if we don't have the posture where the spirit of God is reminding us of our own brokenness, our own desperation. And I know that we live in a world where it's easy to, to talk about having big faith and big courage. And yet, for me at least, the ease by which I now see myself as the hero when I think about my faith and my courage, that becomes now the entry point into self-righteousness and darkness, at least for me. And what I love about Peter and what, what Jesus, just this, this, this background and environment of brokenness and humility is that we need, I need to see myself as the runaway. I'm Peter. And so are you. That I, I want to be at the center of attention. I'm a runaway. I'm quick to be critical. I'm a runaway. I long for control. Of heart. Like an alignment that is just off. I lean towards running. My ambition for success can flow out of a deep need to be accepted. I'm a runaway. And yet even in my running, even, and, and I, I have I've example after example after example of God's commitment to meet me in my running. But what's so easy for me is for me to think about my journey of following Jesus and just relegate God's commitment to meeting me in my journey 
in, in, the, in, the, in the BC days, in the before Christ, in the days, years long past, that I, I remember I was coming home from a restaurant and I, was, I drank way too much and I passed out on the way home. And, I, and I, somehow I got home and somehow I, had, I woke up the next morning. Somehow I was still alive. That was a moment, a defining moment I will never forget. That was Jesus entering into my journey. But just as powerful as that was three days ago when I'm in an interaction with my wife and the Spirit of God speaks to me and says, Corey, you are trying to gain control because you have had a past where you've lost it. And I'm on my back, humbled, broken, and I've never felt better. I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a past where I, I, I've lost control as a result of being a stutterer. I mean, a life of a sudden, imagine not knowing if you're going to hit a wall where you can't speak. That's been my life. Very little control. And so most of my existence, unfortunately, is finding where can I have the most control or where can I be most successful. And this is, this is, this is the runaway. This is me. This is why it's so important for me to be introduced to the real me. And honestly, bring that to the cross. Bring it to an empty tomb. Open-handed going, I am broken. Because as I do that, I see everything, including my neighbors, completely different. I, I need control because of what happened at 10 years old in a tent at a Boy Scout camp where young men showed me things that no young man should see at the age of 10. My innocence stripped. Loss of control. Vowing I'll never be in that position again. Little did I know that I would be time and time again through my own self-infliction. That this is, this is the runaway. And yours, your story may be different than mine, but this is who we are. This is where we, we come to a place that we have to see that Jesus is meeting us. He is intersecting himself with our life because he wants to awaken us to the sacrifice and the power that he has so that he can now take our story and do something with it. That this is, this is the beauty of, of now a life, a long journey where healing occurs over time, not for some it's instant. For me, it's been years and years and years in the making with great wins and lots of losses. But Jesus taking me to the charcoal fire of my tent and my stuttering and reintroducing me to himself and now exchanging these, these words that I believe that I'm unclean or I'm a failure and now exchanging it with new identity. Like this is what it means for us to, to engage in the king in a fresh way. A risen king who doesn't want you to live a life where you're just constantly doing more things. More objects, more objectives to, to accomplish, things to check off. We feel like for many of us, our, our relationship with Jesus is just so much hard work. And it's not designed to be that at all. Corey Bendix coming to the fact that I am a runaway.
that God has intersected my journey with his grace. Man, taking my guilt and exchanging it with his grace, taking my mess and giving me mercy. All with a complete plan to now take my greatest weaknesses and use them as a window for people to see Christ through. That's what he does with Peter. Peter would become the, the mouthpiece for the church. A scared, duplicitous young man would now become one who would proclaim Jesus in Acts 2 and thousands would surrender their knee to Jesus Christ. That now, as a stuttering control freak, I stand before you as a broken man in the hands of a potter shaping me just like he is you. And as I consider that reality of my own runaway heart, now, my eyes are turned to my neighbor. Now my eyes are turned to my neighbor. Now I can see my neighbor not as a project. Now I can have faith for God to do the impossible like he did with me. Because as I consider and allow for the waters of redemption, the waters of God's grace, the waters of an empty tomb, as I allow them to wash over me, Day after day after day through community, through the reading of the word, through the way in which we pray and fast, as it washes over my soul, my eyes begin to awaken to the fact that God can do a miracle in my neighbor, Bill. He can do it. He can do it because he did it with me. He wakened my heart. He can wake, awaken that, that gentleman who has had a challenging life, broken and here, here as, as we consider how we now approach our neighbors, it's one of, in the same way that Jesus was, was relentless in, in intercepting us, guess what you and I get to do? We get to do everything we can in exhausting our resources to intercept our neighbors. It's holding out life with consistency, with grace, and with relentless forgiveness, treating them in the way that they don't treat you. And a few examples of what this has looked like for me. I had a neighbor who was really into jujitsu, and I don't do that. I like my body the way, like, intact. If you know anything about jujitsu, the purpose is to kill the other person. Um, in as many ways as possible and as slowly as you can. Uh, it's a real sport. Good on you. Uh, and so I, I, was, I was just was beginning this great friendship with this neighbor, and he invited me. He was starting to invite me into his life. He said, do you want to do jiu-jitsu with me? Yeah. Okay. Let's try it. And then he, he, was, he was a general manager of um, the Jiffy Lube, and, and he... He, we got to talk, we, like, we were the same age, and we talked about m music a lot. And back in the day, I was really big into Wu-Tang Clan. So we're talking about the Wu. And we're going back and forth about Wu-Tang, and he says, hey, I got your front row seats to Wu-Tang. You're coming. And as a pastor, a pa 
This is the 25th anniversary of Wu-Tang and Snoop. And a pastor just doesn't need to go to Wu-Tang and Snoop. But I, I'm telling you, I, I began to look at this as a defining moment of sacrificing and even being inconvenienced in order to pursue and to represent and to love and to be in the world of this dude. Like, this, like what does it look like now for as a result of seeing Christ, receiving him, seeing him again, going, as, as we talked about tonight, repetition, seeing the cross every day and being amazed and overwhelmed at the grace and then at the same time having the posture of on your back with the heart of brokenness and humility and now beginning to consider your world through the eyes of the inconvenience and sacrifice. One of my favorite, I'll just got one more thing. One of my favorite women who's a writer, her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she probably, her story is stunning. She was the, she was a, a professor at Syracuse and was the, the voice of the LGBTQ community at Syracuse. And suddenly her wife at the time passed away. And she was broken and hurting and had a next door neighbor who was a Presbyterian pastor. And what happened over the next five years is that this pastor loved and, and his family, they loved this woman right where she was. And they, they sacrificed for her and took advantage of, of inconvenient moments that were inconvenient for them, but that mattered for her. And they got to a place where they gave her a house key. Said, you're welcome. Into our family, with our kids. Come over whenever you want. And it was over the course of time, playing the long game, that the Spirit of God took the actions of this family and used that as the track by which it laid directly to her heart. She came to a place of surrendering her life to Jesus. And this woman would eventually get married to a Presbyterian pastor. And she wrote the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Detailing the story of how all this family could do was lay the groundwork of what the gospel was and how it acted through a life that has been changed by it. And the spirit of God took that example and now went to her greatest places of pain, her charcoal fire, and now has took, taken that great pain of hers and used it for her purpose, just like Peter. I'll close with this quote. Charles Spurgeon said, God will never do anything with us until he has first of all undone us. My question to you is, have you been undone by the gospel today? Has the gospel shaped you today? Has it formed you? Has it awakened you? Has it put you on your back? Put you in a place of a posture of brokenness and humility? And out of that place of brokenness, now comes the perspective for glorifying God by loving 
our neighbors. I heard a student ask a teacher here recently, how do you most glorify God? <laughs> a deep question. And the response was stunning. This gentleman didn't even hesitate. He said, the same way you glorify a water fountain. That's a little bit interesting. You show up thirsty and you drink. How do we glorify God? How do we make much of him? How do we point to his beauty? We show up thirsty and we receive. And that which we receive, we give. Lord Jesus, we love you. Break us. Break us from the self-righteousness that easily defines us. Use this church to do what we've been saying for the last year, to embody your grace, to love people right where they are. Will you allow us the privilege to see Rosaria Butterfields all in this sanctuary? Men and women who are broken, who are loved well and long, honored relentlessly with the person and work of Jesus. Lord, people all throughout the city who are hurting, will you allow us the privilege to love them in the way that you've loved us? In your name we pray.